Let's pray for another church in this community before we begin the message. Lord, this morning I want to pray for Luke Panter and for Emily. And Lord, we celebrate with uh, the Christians in this community. You've been praying for this family. We celebrate that Emily is well. Thank you for restoring her to health. And Lord, we pray for Luke, and uh, I pray for him as a fellow pastor. And I pray first for his marriage, Lord, that he is blessed and uh, that he is blessing Emily. I pray that he is first and foremost loving her as Christ loved the church and uh, that his messages are running him through and disassembling him and reassembling him as an image of Christ in the home, that his kids see what Christ looks like in relationship to the church. Lord, I pray that the gospel will be no surprise to his little ones because they've grown up seeing it. And Lord, secondly, behind his uh, ministry to his family, I pray for his ministry to that church, Lord. I pray that that uh, he is poured out as a drink offering. I pray that his his um, worship and uh, journey are out loud and authentic and genuine. And Lord, we pray that that church is growing in faith and uh, growing in uh, worship and wonder and growing downward in humility. And Lord, we pray that, that uh, you are being savored and enjoyed and that your name is renowned among that people. And Lord, we pray that you will guard us uh, as well as the other churches in this community and the churches in Quinlan from ever having a spirit of competition with each other, but that we can cheer for each other and pray for each other and want great things for each other for your namesake. Lord, we thank you so much for the sweet privilege of gathering this morning. We turn this time over to you. I pray that you will guard my thoughts and my words. I pray that you will work in me a gentleness, a tenderness, a truthfulness that come together to speak to your people. We love you so much, Lord, and we turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can turn to John 14. That's kind of our uh, starting point this morning. I'll tell you, beyond John 14, I'm taking you to, let me see, one, two, three, four, four other passages primarily. And I'll tell you what those are. If you have doilies or something in your Bible that you like to mark pages with, or uh, like camouflage burlap or something like that, you know, depending on kind of what you want to do there. Um, you can mark those sections. Second Peter chapter 3. Genesis 3. Romans 8. And Isaiah 65 in that order. I encourage you to, if, uh, if you're one of those that's kind of an audible listener, which I am, to consider that maybe you could just jot down a couple notes here and there, because there may be some things that you want to engage later. Uh, I can't remember a lot of things, although I'm an audible, audible listener. That doesn't make sense. Audible learner. Hopefully we're audible listeners. Audible learner. Then um, I encourage you to just jot these passages down then if you're not going to read along with me. Starting in John 14, verse 2 and 3, I'll start in verse 1 just for sake of context. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. These last few weeks, last couple of weeks, we've been engaging these, specifically verses 2 and 3, considering pictures of heaven. And it's sort of given birth to kind of a little heaven series. Uh, We will, 
I expect that we will, I know for sure we're going to preach on heaven this morning, and then next Sunday I think will be the last part of this little heaven series, and then we'll continue on in John. But John has kind of been an escort for us to engage an um, important truth about this place prepared. See, these guys left everything to follow Christ, and they're troubled at a few things that are unfolding. They're troubled that, that it looks like, uh, well, Judas left the table, a betrayer. And they're also troubled that he was likely the most trusted among them, the money keeper. They're also troubled that it looks like Christ is about to go somewhere that they can't go. And they may be piecing together that he's about to point to, he's pointing to a cross. He's about to go be crucified. This is hours before he's crucified. So he ministers to their troubled hearts with encouragement. You believe in God, believe also in me, God the Son. That's who he is. But also this encouragement that I'm going to prepare something for you. And there's going to be ample space and ample room there. The thing that we considered a couple weeks ago is that this place prepared is a place of relationship. It's a place of koinonia. That's a Greek word we considered last week. Koinonia means fellowship. It's a place of fellowship. It's not so much about the mansions as much as about the ample space. Come hang out at my house. I got room for you. And we can hang together and enjoy each other. It's about the relationship. It's not about the physical room you're going to sleep in. Secondly, it's a place of relationship with Christ. He encourages their troubled heart with not, hey, you're going to get to see your granddaddy that's gone on before you. There's nothing wrong with that sort of hope. But he encourages their troubled heart with, I'm going to take you to myself, that where I am you may be also with me. See, he's the treasure of heaven. I so desperately look forward to meeting my granddaddy. I never met him. He died when I was a year old. I have his Bible from 1950, and in the front of his Bible, he's made resolutions that have connected with me 59 years later. I want to meet him. But if I show up in heaven and he's there and Jesus is not, I'm out of there. Where is he? That's the encouraging carrot for the troubled heart is that Jesus is there. It's a place of relationship, koinonia. It's a place of koinonia with Christ. And it's a place that was prepared by the cross. He's not up there with a hammer and nails and chisel and saw. I hope they like their new house. He's not doing that. The place was prepared by the cross. And then last week we considered that all these things, a place of relationship, a place of koinonia, a place of koinonia with Christ, a place prepared by the cross, as in the hammer and nails have already been used, that all those things are also true of the church. That the church is pre-heaven. And folks that have no use for the church or have a dabbling, kind of a, let me brush up against it, but stay at the fringes of it and hope to be immersed in that heaven to come, need to realize that if you have no use for this, you won't have any use for that. That's what heaven is. Church is pre-heaven. It's the already and the not yet to come is the heaven itself. I appreciate that I'm thankful that what the Lord gave us in these last few weeks is he laid a priority. The priority of heaven is where we've gone the last two weeks. Now, while those are a priority, the actual physical character of heaven and dimensions of heaven matter. The problem is usually when we engage heaven, that's all we engage so we don't look at it through the lens of the cross as achieving it and building it. We don't look at it in terms of Christ is the carrot. 
So I appreciate the last two weeks have kind of prioritized for us the important things, and these are less important but yet important because the, the character of heaven, the dimensions of heaven, the dynamics of heaven get airtime. So we're going to spend this week and next week considering it. Turn to the book of Matthew. Well, you can. Uh, uh, It's not one of the things I told you that that I would have you go to, but if you are a visual learner, then go there. Matthew chapter chapter 3. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning on kind of the preliminary work for the sermon. Matthew is a book. It's like the heaven book. It's crazy the number of times Matthew, or excuse me, uh, the crazy number of times heaven is dealt with in Matthew. It's dealt with a lot because in the book of Matthew, what other gospels refer to as the kingdom of God, Matthew refers to as the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking the language in many ways, the language of a Jew. He's speaking to a Jewish mindset. And kingdom of heaven apparently resonated more than the kingdom of God. But some things that I want to do in Matthew is I just want us to do kind of this, this, I don't know what kind of gun I'm thinking of, machine gun sort of thing where we engage these passages quickly. Just a thought. And we're going to gather worship data. Remember, we're not fact collectors. We're not scientists sitting around collecting facts. We're, we're truth enjoyers. So let's collect some truth data on heaven. Okay, starting in chapter 3, verse 2. John the Baptist preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the first thing we can learn about heaven is that heaven is home base for a kingdom. In the Marine Corps, we called it the command post. And for kind of lingo, short term, we call it the head shed. It's where all the important guys hang out that kind of run the show. Heaven is command post and head shed, sort of like Rome would have been for the Roman Empire. That's not a great illustration because the Roman Empire is not one we want to um, compare to the kingdom of God, but you can envision Rome being home base for an empire, sort of like Alexandria would be for Egypt. Heaven is home base for a kingdom. Verse 17 says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, first thing we know is that heaven is home base for a kingdom. Second, we know that a voice can come from this place. Okay, chapter 5, verse 2, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So heaven's home base for a kingdom, a voice can come from heaven, and there's apparently a place that we can store up some reward. Now the next verse is 16. Jesus said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So God the Father is in this place. He's in the command post. It's appropriate. Now, while we know, I hope you trust to know that God is omniscient, He knows all things, and He's omnipresent. He's here with us now. There seems to be some sort of geographic focus or locus in heaven. Like our Lord's Prayer that's familiar to us, our Father who art in heaven. Now, verse 18 Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I want you to pay attention to this verse. There's another one like it that's going to lead us on our journey today. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away implies that there will come a point where this heaven and earth will pass away. That's an important one. Chapter 6, verse 10, embedded within our Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come... 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is part request and it's part proclamation. Your kingdom come, your, earth, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. Lord, we're praying in our prayer. Jesus is teaching them to pray. Pray that the kingdom of God will come, the kingdom of heaven will come here. And the beauty is if you're looking at this in terms of reference, you're realizing that you're praying that this will of God will be done on earth as it already is in heaven, that the kingdom of heaven is moving in this direction. It's in progress. It's underway. The kingdom of God is indeed at hand. Is it fully realized yet? No, but it's on its way. Okay, the next verse. Turn to chapter 14, verse 19. Collecting worship data. Jesus is feeding the multitudes. He ordered, that the crowd, he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Next thing we know about heaven is that it's up. He looked up to heaven. Now, if you're thinking about geography or you're thinking about directions and cardinal directions, you realize that, that Israel is on the other side of the world, not absolutely perfectly. I think Kazakhstan is perfectly on the other side. But Israel's somewhere in between. If he's looking up, he's looking in a different direction than if we're looking up. So it's less about the direction as it is about we're looking away from this creation. We're looking at anything other than this fallen world, and we're looking in the realm of something different. And that's what heaven is. And he's looking in that direction. John 17, 1, when he prays, he looks heavenward. And that would be up. Chapter 18, verse 10. This is really a weird one. He's been speaking about children. He's been speaking about causing little ones to stumble and a charge not to do that. And then in verse 10, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's a weird one and one that I'll probably never preach on. But I'll mention it now that children have angels in heaven with front row access to the Father. Okay? Let's leave it as, as it says. Now, verse 18. Go down a few verses. This is after the passage that deals with church discipline, a, a passage that we've engaged as a people a few times. Verse 18 says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That passage is important in regards to this heavenly realm, this command post. What it's saying is there is that whatever happens here is recognized there. If I stand before Brandon and Erica Barker and pronounce them husband and wife, then guess what? In heaven they're saying, yep, husband and wife. Now, it's not news to them because God joined them together already. But that's the place where it's consummated, or at least it's recognized in front of the people of God. It's recognized in heaven. And the, same, the flip side would be true. Whenever this church has gathered and gone through church discipline four or five times in the life of our church, and in, on, on, the, on those occasions where we've loosed, we've disfellowshipped somebody, it's recognized in heaven. <laughs> Whatever is bound on earth is recognized in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth is recognized in heaven. So heaven is not distant and uninvolved. God is not aloof and uncaring, but what happens there, what happens here matters there. 
He knows this church better than you and I know it. Chapter 19, verse 21, next data point. Jesus said, he's speaking to the rich young man, he says, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So know already that we can have heaven, or a reward stored in heaven, so we can also have treasure stored in heaven. The next one's in chapter 22, verse 30. Jesus says, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We get a couple of things from that. First of all, we get that angels are in heaven. Secondly, we get that there won't be any marriage in heaven. I get that question sometimes. Will will marriages be recognized in heaven? And if the marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, if it's that walking visual, that living out loud visual of Christ in the church, then once the church is with Christ, that walking visual is superfluous. That's a fancy way of saying unnecessary. Marriages won't be recognized in heaven. While he looks down, heaven looks down and says, yep, Erica and Brandon are married. When we get there to heaven, we won't be wearing a ring anymore because we'll be with our groom. The church will be with our groom. Now, chapter 24, verse 29. This is a big one, longer one. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Heaven is a place that Christ will return from someday. And the elect who have gone on before us, who are already in that place with the Lord, will be gathered up, just like the elect here in the four winds and the four corners will be gathered up. And he will return from the place where he ascended. And the last passage we're going to look at in Matthew is chapter 24, verse 35, just a few verses down. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's just like this verse I said pay attention to earlier in chapter 5, verse 18. Heaven and earth will pass away. What we think is so final and so solid and so secure and so forever is not solid. It's just temporary. I was thinking of some of the things that in my mind just are the picture of stability and foreverness, and the ocean is one of them. I look at the ocean, I think the ocean is going nowhere, except creeping inward, laying inland. The ocean is there. I mean, forever? You look at a mountain, Mount Rainier, Mount Kilimanjaro, Mount Everest, forever, right? With our human minds, we look at them and say, those aren't going anywhere. We look at a place like Dallas, and we say, Dallas isn't going anywhere except out here. (laughs) Right? Well, this passage in the one in chapter 5, verse 18, is telling me that this earth and heaven as we know it is passing away. There's a couple of key passages there that I really want you to get your head around. We're going to engage 
that are going to lead us on our journey this morning. I'm going to read a couple of passages. I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I want to share a couple of passages with you that reinforce what we've seen in Matthew in this heaven book. First Corinthians chapter 7. Stay over there in Second Peter, but just listen to this as you're turning. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says, The appointed time has grown very short. He's speaking of the return of the Lord. The appointed time is short. He's coming back. And because the appointed time is short, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though who had, those who had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For listen, for the present form of this world is passing away. Kilimanjaro, Everest, Rainier, Ocean, Dallas is passing away. John, that dude walked, or Paul didn't walk with that, but John walked with Jesus. And John says the same thing. In 1 John, he says, And the world is passing away with long with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at later. I'm just going to read a little snippet of it right now. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What you need to realize is that earth as we know it is in childbirth right now. It's going to deliver something else. This, as we know it, is passing away. And what you need to realize is that this, what is going to happen to this creation, is connected to heaven, our concept of this place prepared. Heaven as we think of it now is so intertwined with this new earth. I'm going to show you this. Heaven as we think of it now is just a layover for the people of God. Heaven as you think of where maybe your loved one has gone right now is just a layover. For the people of God. It's a temporary place on the journey. It's not the final destination. It is not the place prepared that Jesus speaks of in John 14. Heaven as you think of it right now is not that place prepared. Those you've buried, those who are the patriarchs that we read about in our Bibles, who've gone on before us, the saints over the ages are not walking streets of gold right now. For they're without their bodies. They're just there in spirit. They are not eating from the tree of life, and they are not where we're going to end up. They are apart from their bodies in a temporary place. They're in a layover right now. And the place we're going to go is to where this heaven or an earth that's passing away is where it's going to end up. While we know they're not in that place yet, we trust to know that they're with the Lord and that, according to Christ's conversation with the thief on the cross, that it's paradise, it's going to be sweet. He said, you will be with me in paradise today. But it's not where we will spend eternity. It is not the place prepared. It's a layover. So what is that final destination? Second Peter chapter 3, I'll begin in verse 10. Listen to this. This is so sweet. 
The day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's in reference to His return. And then the heavens will pass away. There it is again with a roar in the heavenly bodies. That's speaking of, um, there's another, other passages that point to the elements. So earth, wind, fire, stars, sun, moons. Those will pass away and be burned up and dissolved. Did you know that? I've been a Christian about 30 years before I knew that. I was like, well, why am I just finding this out? Huh? These things as we know it are going to be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Look down in your little notes if you have an ESV and it points to they will be burned up. This whole thing that we know, Everest, Kilimanjaro, Rainier, Ocean, Dallas, burned up. And Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting, listen, for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is the place prepared. The place of new heavens and new earth. That is the place prepared. Now I want to talk about what it's going to be like, but before I can talk about what it's going to be like, I've got to talk about what it isn't like. I want to consider what this is like. We're going to look through the lens of where we live in order to enjoy where we're going. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, it's the account of the fall. The serpent deceived Eve, and Eve said, Hey, Adam, have a bite. And Adam took a bite of the forbidden fruit. And as a result of their sin, God said, Don't eat of that tree. There were consequences. And the consequences is what we're about to read about right now. This is going to connect to all this. Just take a look at this. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Before the days of epidural, right? Some of y'all that asked for an epidural too late, right? Pain. And then this, this next one we see often is, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. I'm sorry, men, that doesn't mean that your wife is going to be hot for you. It means that she's going to be hot to control you. Your desire will be for your, for your husband means that your desire will be to control your husband. That's a picture of nagging right there. You wonder where nagging came from? It came from the fall. Listen, I know it's something we kind of laugh about. We're laughing nervously. But ladies, if you think, well, that's just kind of how I am, realize you're speaking to the fallenness of your humanity. Yes, it comes natural. Natural for emphasis. That's the way we say it now. Say natural. It comes natural. Want to control your man. And then on the flip side of that, and he shall rule over you. And it's natural for a man to want to control his wife and rule over her. Gentleness doesn't come natural, men. Tenderness doesn't come natural caring for your wife as a weaker vessel does not come natural it's got to come from something else that's a result of the fall the man wants to control his wife and the wife wants to control her husband it's like this built-in egypt to the institution of of, uh, slavery not slavery marriage (laughs) 
I'm going to hear about that. Then in verse 17, let's move on. And to Adam, I'm sweating now. And to Adam, he said, Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed, that's the key word that we're going to engage in these next few minutes. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The consequences of the fall, people realize this. This is the world that we live in. Here are the consequences. The woman wants to control her man. The man wants to rule his wife. The ground is cursed, and it's painful to eat. It's painful to earn a living, to provide for you and your family. Thorns and thistles fight back. You have to sweat for bread till you die, until you return back to the earth. I want to consider and pick this part just for a minute, the cursed earth. First of all, something that's characteristic of our cursed earth is decay. For those of you who are older than 30, 35 maybe, you might have a sense of what I'm talking about. When you get up in the morning, you're a little bit more cramped and rickety or I don't know what terms you want to use, achy than you used to be. That's the result of this fall. When you look in the mirror and you see a little more gray than you used to see, that's a result of the fall. Decay is part of the fall. Look at your car. Leave your car to its own device, and over years, it's going to decay. It's going to rust. It's not going to run as good. It takes somebody involved in staying on top of it, and even stay on top of it, it's still going to die someday because decay will always win. It's a result of the fall. Look at your houses. Even a brand new house, look at it a few years later, man. You're seeing things that are coming apart. Squirrels eating here. <laughs> All kind of things happening. Look at your lawnmowers. You're about to pull out your lawnmowers here in a couple of weeks or a month or so. And how many of you will crank it the first time? You have to take it to the lawnmower repair shop. That's decay. Christy and I had a theory about the seven-year itch, that the seven-year itch comes from everything breaking about seven years. You get a bunch of new stuff when you get married, and about se- they all, everything has a seven-year lifespan, from the toaster to the lawnmower. And that's what makes you frustrated in marriage, because that's decay. We're surrounded by it. Rot, rust, wrinkles, gray, backaches, pain, RSV. Anybody dealt with RSV here lately? It's like been this epidemic among the children. Diabetes, blindness, Crohn's, allergies, those are a result of the fall. That is decay, and that is the world that we live in. Another picture of this is, or another thing that's true of this cursed earth is entropy. I wrote a a little response, kind of an ask the elders question a couple months ago, or maybe a month ago now, on evolution. And I wrote about this thing called entropy. Entropy is part of the second law of thermodynamics. Before you disengage, let me explain this to you, and you'll really see this. The second law of thermodynamics is, is, is this law that states that entropy is increasing. And entropy is basically the amount of disorder in a system. What it's saying is that things go from a higher state of order to a lower state of order unless there's some sort of energy injected into the system. In real ignorant layman terms, which I need, I can get a picture of this in my desk in my office. 
I straighten my desk up, and it's a very natural thing. If left to its own device, within days, it looks like a bomb went off in there. Things go from a higher state of order to a lower state of order. Some of you mommies, think about your van. You can clean it, and within hours, it's gone from a higher state of order to a lower state of order. It's got Cheetos, M&Ms, little foreign bodies that we don't know what they are. (laughs) That's a result of the fall. That's entropy. On Friday, I take the day off on Friday, and, and I do some teaching with the kids, and, and, and also I, I help with cleaning around the house. So Friday, as I cleaned, like I always do, just because that's who I am, I, I, was, I was cleaning around the house and vacuuming and stuff like that, and I was thinking to myself, we're going to have to do this again in a week. That's entropy. That's the curse. That's the earth that we live in. And I'll tell you this, too, kids increase the rate of entropy. Just realize that. I know they have their guardian angels and all, but they increase the rate of entropy. (laughs) The next thing that's true of this cursed earth is there's one step forward and two steps back. That's the reality of this earth. It's the thorns and thistles that are in that image of the curse that point to this reality that as hard as you try, it's almost as if it's one step forward and two steps back. It's a lot harder to fill your checking account than it is to empty it. It's a lot harder to do work than it is to rest. And about the time you actually do something, it's a whole lot harder to maintain that sort of work than it is to relax. It's one step forward and two steps back. That's the environment that we live in. And the reality is, here's the picture of it. There's passages. You can jot these down and look at these later. Deuteronomy chapter 28 has a great picture of the consequence of the fall. The picture, it's a thematic picture that's all through our Old Testaments where you build a house and somebody else lives in it. You build a business and somebody else inhabits it. That's happened in this church. You put your hand to something and somebody else reaps the reward. You plant and somebody else harvests. That's a consequence of the fall. I was thinking about this, man. You work your life off. I mean, you work your whole life. Now, I don't know that, that there's a biblical picture of retirement. But maybe you do. You work your life, your whole life to get to the point of retirement. By the time you actually have some money to go spend doing things, you're too old to really enjoy it. That's one step forward, two steps back. That's a result of the fall. And then the most heartbreaking result of the fall, this curse, is death. We've lost loved ones in this church. Many of you have dealt with that sort of loss even recently. We've lost little ones. We've lost babies. We've lost friends. Keith McCord, who stood here one day and said, though you slay me, I will trust you, and months later is dead with his six-month-old in the room with him. We've dealt with entropy. We've dealt with the curse up close and personal. Death. We've lost friends. We've lost parents. And in those occasions, you can weep with Christ. That that's not what we were made for. It's a result of the fall. These are very real consequences of where we live. I watched a movie last night. Turn to Romans 8, and I'll tell you this story as you're turning there. I watched a movie last night for the first time. I heard about it, and uh, if any of you are real fans of this movie, I hope that someday you'll forgive me. It's called Facing the Giants. I, I expect, suspect that many of y'all have seen this movie. Facing the Giants is about this coach 
and he's coach of a, a football team, high school football team, that he's not doing very well. He, he, he finds out, first of all, there's something that stinks in his house. Something's died in the floor or something, and they can't figure it out. Uh, his football team is losing. Um, so he, they're, they're talking about canning him, and he hears the conversation about wanting to can him. He finds out that he and his wife can't have kids, and he's the one to blame, or not to blame, but he's the one, the reason they can't have kids. All these things that he finds out, and then one night he just kind of has this crisis where he stays up all night long and he reads his Bible and he goes out into this meadow and prays, and then things change from that point on. He wins every football game from that point on. He finds what stinks in his house. He gets a raise. Oh, yeah, he had a car that was broken down. Like, it wouldn't even run. He gets a raise. Somebody gives him a new truck. His wife gets pregnant. And, in fact, not only does she get pregnant, it's like this amazing thing where her gestation period is like four months long or something. I mean, she's just having kids as fast as, fast as they can turn around. There's another one. I thought to myself as I watched that video, I thought, not on this earth. They win every game. It shows them two years later, and there's two um, trophies on the wall for their state championships, a little baby running around, and she's pregnant again. And his new truck sitting in the driveway, no stink in the house. And I'm thinking, not on this earth. The story really showed the picture of what the new heavens and new earth are going to be like. He even had a little kid on his football team, little bitty dude that couldn't kick very good. He was a kicker. He could kick about 35 yards. And in the final game, the game that they won, he kicks a 51-yard field goal. I mean, everything's going their way. And I'm thinking, where's the curse? Because we still live in that earth. I'm also thinking, where's the church? There was no picture of the church involved there. Is this pre-heaven. It was just this dude and his family in one night in a meadow. I thought, where's the church? And I thought, yet again, Christianity has such a low view of the local bride. And it shows this one dude in his special quiet time that makes for all new heavens and new earth experience right here on earth. And I thought, not on this earth. Because you know what? That is a caricature of misunderstood faith. Because there are faithful people who are losing their businesses. There are faithful people who are dying of cancer. There are faithful people that have blind kids. How do you deal with that? It's because we live in a fallen, cursed earth. And that's why we're aching for this new heavens and new earth. We get little tastes of that place now. They're little tastes, so. This guy, this coach, wouldn't even have any desire for the new heavens and new earth because he was already there. It was unrealistic. I was heartbroken about it. For any of you who love that movie, I'm really sorry. I hope you'll forgive me someday. Romans chapter 8 speaks to where, where this is. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul writes to a church, to believers. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Those heartaches and loss and heartbreaks that you're dealing with, it's because we live in this fallen world. And he says, man, as bad as those things can be, some of you have the perfect storm of heartache that you're dealing with right now. As bad as those things can be, they're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that, the glory he's speaking of in the next verse. For the creation 
waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation's sitting by saying, man, I sure will be glad when the, final, the last of the elect are collected. And Jesus can come back and we can give birth to this new earth. For the creation was subjected to futility. It was subjected to entropy. It was subjected to a curse. It was subjected to one step forward, two steps back. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God gave the curse, but there was hope behind it all the time. And the hope is that the creation itself will be set free from this bondage to decay and obtain a freedom of the glory of the children of God. What this is pointing to is that this fallen earth, there's hope behind the whole thing. And the hope is for a new creation, and a creation that's been liberated, a creation that's free with the freedom of glory. And that will be the new heavens and new earth. That's that place that was prepared by the work of the cross. This new heavens and new earth that we are to ache for will be free of all these things we just engaged. Decay, entropy, one step forward, two steps back, death. Completely free of that. Turn to Isaiah 65. Oh, this is rich. This is so rich. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. There it is right there. It's a prophetic passage. It's poetic. Now let me... Let me tell you, it's poetic. You don't take poetry literally, but you get the flavor of it. You get the aroma of it and the taste of it. So just even close your eyes and take in this poem about this new heavens and new earth. Listen, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping. How many of you have wept in the last month? No more. Not here. No more shall be heard in it the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And listen to this picture. You remember that thematic consequence of sin that's through our Old Testament? Listen to this. They shall build houses and inhabit them. That's good. You build it and you actually live in it? Sweet. They shall plant vineyards and actually eat the fruit of it. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, like a sequoia, like a redwood, like an olive tree. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. That's where we live right now. Those of you who are older than 15, aren't you amazed that anybody lives beyond the age of 15? 
This is a place where children will not be born for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Because he's, he's going to be right up in here amongst us. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Picture of peace. And they shall not, oh, excuse me, this is a pointing back to Genesis chapter 3, and dust shall be the serpent's food. You think this isn't a fall connection? Go back and read Genesis 3. Dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. No curse, no entropy, no death, no decay, no thorns, no thistles, no tears, no suffering. Your team wins always here. Little people can kick really long field goals here. No RSV, no cancer here. No blindness, no allergies here. Someone else will not inherit or possess what you've earned here in this place prepared. Can you imagine a place where you actually make something and it does not decay or break or even age? We even use the term age as shorthand for decay. Imagine building something that does not decay. Imagine having a body when our souls are reunited with our renewed bodies, a body that does not diminish. Those of you who are hurting in the morning when you get out of bed, imagine not hurting. Imagine having no problems. Imagine having full vision. Can you imagine a place where your body does not diminish? Can you imagine a place without death, those who've dealt with it recently? Those who maybe are still hurting from a loss at some point. Can you imagine a place without death? Can you imagine a desk that does not get dirty or messy? <laughs> I think of it often. Can you imagine, moms, a van that does not get dirty? Will there be vans there? I don't know. But that sort of environment, it's free of all we know. Everything we know is subject, subjected to the curse. A place that's free of all those things. We will live in a place that's like nothing we've ever experienced and all of that because of the cross. Peter asked the question, we read it earlier. What kind of people ought we be? If we believe this, if we know this to be true, if we know this is coming, if we know that all creation is in labor right now to deliver a whole new heavens and a whole new earth, what kind of people ought we be? We ought to be a hoping people and an aching people. We ought to be a people who have an aching hope or a hoping ache. Because unlike the coach, man, we're dealing with heartache, heartbreak, loss, pain, sickness, Suffering. We ought to be a people who are eager for this final home. Who are not clinging and all about the temporal. We ask people what their dreams are. It shouldn't be about a bigger house or a bigger car. Is there anything wrong with that? No. But we ought to be dreaming about glory and new heavens and a new earth. A place that it really lasts. 
Because all this is going to be burnt up along with Dallas and Kilimanjaro. We ought to be a different people with a different list of priorities. Different pursuits. What matters to the world doesn't matter to us. And what matters to us looks foolish to the world. What sort of people ought we be? We ought to be a people that are aching for this. This place prepared. This new heavens. This new earth. We ought to be aching for a curse-free environment where we will be with our Lord. That's the sort of people we ought to be. And I want you to know this. My last sentence. Hear this. When you look at your dirty van, when you weep over losing a loved one, when you have to fill your syringe with insulin, when you have to sit at your desk with all kind of equipment just so you can read your book, when you get out of bed and you ache, think about the cross and what a place has been prepared that's in store for us. And when you do that, that's called worship. That's the sort of people we ought to be. Lord, we have so much to look forward to. Lord, I pray that even in the small, mundane, routine things that we look at, like a dirty desk, or even the daily challenges of maybe dealing with an Egypt-like marriage, or maybe dealing with sickness or loss, Maybe dealing with the thought that someone else has moved into our house. Someone else is, in, is using our business. Someone else is harvesting what we've planted. Lord, I pray that in all those things, even in death, when we've lost a loved one, that we can weep with Jesus and we can have a hoping ache. And that we can worship in those moments knowing that there is a sweet place prepared in store for us, a curse-free environment. A place where we will be with our Jesus. Lord, I pray that that impacts us and makes us live differently. Work that in us, Lord, please, we beg. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song. This Sunday, basically, I think, more than anything, we dealt kind of with the environment. And not, not so much the physical dimensions as much as the dynamics. A curse-free zone, it's like nothing that we can really fathom. But we should try. We should try and enjoy and imagine what life will be like in that sort of setting. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. We get little tastes of it in the church. One of the things that I really didn't have time to engage this morning is this picture of Jesus, or God tells the nation of Israel that God the Father tells the nation of Israel that they will have ample resources in the promised land. They'll have full bellies. Come eat and drink without cost. Come move into buildings and homes that you didn't build. That's what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be a place of ample resource. And you know what? The church is a pre-heaven in that we have everything in common. When someone has a need in the church, it's met. Full bellies. I don't mean just spiritually. I mean being warm and well-fed too. 
We care for each other. We're involved in each other's lives. I hope if you have any questions about this Sunday's message that uh, you'll feel free to email me or call me. Email or call any of the elders. I want you to see approachability. And uh, it's not an insult to ask questions. In fact, it's, it's a compliment. It means you're paying attention. And I encourage you to engage.